0: Powerful passage. So I don't know if you're like my wife, Millie and I, and my name's Josh, if you don't know me. I'm an elder here at Grace Church. I'm the family pastor, in case you haven't met me before. But I don't know if you're like my wife, Millie and I, but when we finally saved enough money and we finally have time set aside and we're ready for a vacation, we ask ourselves, nature vacation or city vacation? Do we wanna see rivers and trees and mountains, and after living here a while, find some rain? Or do we wanna see a city, right? Bright lights, metros, back streets, like Anthony Bourdain finding local food. And honestly, most of the time we pick cities. We love cities, because we love different cultures. And cultures are most communicated by their cities, the different architecture, the different way of life, the pace of life, like I said, the different food. People build cities in their likeness. Abu Dhabi reflects the likeness of people that live here, right? Both locals and expats. Paris, Hong Kong, Lahore, Manila, they all reflect the likeness of those who live there. In the same way that people build cities in their likeness, God is building a city in his likeness, a city that has not come to earth yet, a heavenly city that we long for and we don't often know it. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a famously quoted phrase saying, if we find in ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And we're all this way. We all long for a city that is a utopia. In all of our human history, we've sought to build these cities that can fix all of our problems. From Babel to Sumeria, Constantinople to Rome, all of those cities at some point, no matter the grandeur, the culture, the technology, they all at some point descended into chaos marked by crime and injustice. The utopian city that God is building is a city like no other because it is transformed by the radiant glory of God. Yes, it is a city that is beautifully adorned as God is with gold and precious stones. But most importantly, is it, a, it is a city where evil is banished and humanity can live in peace and flourishing and worship with God and one another that is incomprehensible to the world we now live in John 14, 2 through 6, after Jesus foretold his death to his disciples, he wanted to encourage them. And so he said this, he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That is where, where I am, you may also we're going to come back to this, but for now, turn your Bible to Revelation 21, Revelation 21, your Bible, your phones, and we're going to study one through eight. Thank you, Krishna, for reading the passage for us, but let me pray one more time before we get started. Father, Lord, we are so grateful that you have, before the beginning of time, planned to unite yourself with your creation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the perfect lamb. You don't need us to be glorious, but it is by your grace you adopt us into your family that we might flourish with you forever and ever. Let us see with new eyes the hope that you have prepared for us. And for those who do not have hope, let your spirit open their eyes to see your goodness. Amen. If you haven't noticed, Revelation 21 is at the very end of your Bible. It's not only at the end of your Bible, but it is the end of all of the created history and the world as we know it. The apostle John, towards the end of his life, was exiled to the island of Patmos in kind of the last of the first century AD. And during that exile, he received a series of visions. Later, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he organized these visions as the book of Revelation. And the purpose of Revelation is not kind of some... Biblical sci-fi meant to entertain us, although it can feel like that at times. But the purpose of Revelation was to offer encouragement to those who were living in exile, scattered, who were experiencing extreme persecution. Christian churches that were scattered around experiencing persecution. And it's important to say from the get-go that these visions are sometimes hard to interpret. And it's even easier if we're not careful to read what we want into those visions. There are times like in the first chapter where John is explicit and tells us what the visions represent. So the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches in Asia Minor. Then there are other visions that we don't exactly know, you know, can pinpoint down, like the 144,000. We have our ideas, we kind of have some theories, but it's not really, really, really clear. The best way we can make sense of John's language is to use other parts of scripture. Passages from Daniel, Isaiah, other apocalyptic literature. And that's my posture today towards interpreting Revelation. I want the Bible to interpret the Bible. The Bible is inerrant. It is without error. It is consistent. It is trustworthy. The Bible is not the problem. We are often the problem. Sin clouds our understanding of the scriptures. And it is only through the Holy Spirit revealing to us that we can see clearly. So all that being said, Revelation 21, verse one, Revelation 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So we enter the vision seeing what John sees. First, John sees something new, something that has never been seen on this earth before, a new heaven a celestial sky, space, the universe, and a new earth. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah sixty-six seventeen 17 through 22, a new heaven and a new earth that will endure forever. And this wasn't just some kind of universe next door. This isn't another universe in a multiverse of universes. This is an altogether new one. The old had passed away and the new had come. As I referenced, I, I do love science fiction. I read too many science fiction books. But it, it kind of struck me that in the totality of, our, of the imaginations of our best writers and their universes and the world building, we may have light speed, we may have time travel through wormholes, we may have cloning, but all of those writers in their best imaginations are subjected to the relative physics and kind of the imagined biology of our universe. It is nearly impossible, it is impossible for them to invent anything new. Beale, a theologian, he parses this word new, and he points out something important, that new here is in quality, not in time. New is in quality, not as in time. So something can be new as it progresses, or as it digresses, but that's not what it means here. So for example, a seed as it progresses, becomes a tree, right? That's new as in time. That's not what the word here means. It's new as in something completely different. So the rock you might pick up off the ground in your iPhone, completely different. So this new heavens and this new earth, they're transformed at the fundamental physical building blocks of creation. We see here that the sea is no more and there is no light in verses 22-22 in chapter 22, verses five. And you kind of almost want to stop John here and say, "Uh, wait, John, we've got some questions. So does the earth not revolve around the sun? Are there no tides? There's no bodies of water. Do we not drink water? And the fact is that we don't exactly know what the new heavens and the new earth will physically be like based on John's descriptions. And that's not the point that he's writing here he is very clear theologically. Okay, again, we want the Bible to help us interpret revelation. So John specifically by saying the sea is no more, the sea is no more. John is using a metaphor used throughout the Old and the New Testament. So Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, he says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It is out of the sea that the Leviathan and Job live. It is out of the sea that beasts come in Daniel 7. The final beast comes blaspheming God and making war on the saints in Revelation 13, 1, 6, and 7. The sea in the Bible is a place of chaos and unrest. It is a source of evil. That's why the gospel writers make such a big deal out of Jesus walking on water in the sea during a storm and why the disciples are terrified that they're going to die. And so they go and they wake up Jesus and Jesus comes and with a word, he calms the storm. Jesus's authority over nature and over chaos and evil proves his divinity. So let me transliterate kind of this first verse. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth not at all the same quality because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and all the wickedness, chaos, and evil are no more. And I saw the holy city, verse two, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Second, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and John wants us right away to see that God does this. This city is not the outcome of any human, scientific, or technological achievement. We didn't reach some kind of peak consciousness. We didn't plant enough trees to reverse climate change. This city comes down out of heaven from God. It is a miraculous, glorious gift to conclude history as we know it and to start a new creation which has no end. The universe we now live in, the first creation, started when God said, let there be light in Genesis 1. And it started with Adam and Eve walking with God in an idyllic garden, commissioned to multiply and to subdue the earth. But even in that perfect situation, humans could not live up to the standard that God intended. Adam and Eve sinned. They invited chaos and wickedness and evil into God's perfect garden, and for that they were expelled creation began in a garden with two people, but now it ends in a glorious, perfect city filled with all the saints of God. And look how John, by the Holy Spirit, organizes the book of Revelation. It starts with seven churches in Asia Minor. And if you have read Revelation before, it's easy to remember all of the things that they did wrong, all of their negatives, right? These seven churches, they definitely made mistakes. Of course they did. They were Real churches with real Christians. They had been bought by the blood of Jesus, but like all of us, they struggle with sin. They were seven imperfect churches. So Ephesus, though they toiled and they patiently endured and they hated evil, they lost sight of their first love. Pergamum, despite enduring terrible persecution and not denying Christ, even though members were martyred, They still mixed their Christian faith with other false religious practices and they needed to repent. Thyatira, they were known for their love and their faith and their service, but they had a female false prophet who were seducing their members. And not only had she not repented, but the elders seemed to not be doing anything about it. Philadelphia, a church that was small and poor and had no power, they kept God's word. They were known for their obedience, despite the Jewish leaders with power continually abusing them, so much so that Jesus promises that those leaders, he would make those false leaders bow at their feet. But he reminds them, hold fast. Don't give up. All seven churches reflected Christ. Imperfectly, but they reflected Christ. They may be reflecting him through fractured glass, but they are reflecting him. So back to verse two. What began as seven imperfect churches now is replaced by one perfect church. These seven churches were real churches and their representation of all the churches in all of the world, small, imperfect, localized reflections of Christ. And now in verse two, heaven to earth, a city that God and Jesus built And they had prepared for the church. The church is no longer scattered all over the globe, but together as one church, no longer reflecting Christ imperfectly, but perfectly reflecting his presence. This is the Father's house that Jesus was foretelling his disciples in John 14. Here is the place he had left to go prepare for us. This city has many rooms or KJV, many mansions. And now Jesus has returned seated on the throne to fulfill his promises and to bring his disciples to his father's house. So the new Jerusalem, the city of God that came down from heaven like a spotless, white-dressed, beautiful bride is for his bride. The bride of Christ now has her home. The city is for the bride. The bride of Christ now has her home. At this point, we have been seeing what John has seen, this new heavens, this new earth, this new city. And now we hear what John hears, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so don't miss that. I heard a loud voice from the throne Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So, like we said, from the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve, God created man in his image to be with him. He walked with man and woman in the garden, but because of their sin, their relationship with God was damaged. But now, Man and woman dwell with God together in a restored relationship. Because of Jesus, our sin is no longer a barrier to the presence of God. This verse echoes the promise in Ezekiel 37, which is connected to Leviticus 16, which says that God will tabernacle with man forever. So here is the new Jerusalem. The Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled through Jesus. Now the family of God is together, and not just, not just the Jews, but now the Gentiles are no longer excluded from the tabernacle, but all the nations of the earth dwell in unity with God. This is what baffles the angels in the book of Hebrews, the links, and the depths and the heights that God has gone to to restore his relationship with man. It is very important that we pause here We cannot miss what John is showing us. John says the phrase, God dwells with his people in four different poetic ways. Before John describes all the benefits of God, he wants us to see that the ultimate treasure is not the benefits of God, but God himself. It's easy to keep reading and to say, look at heaven, streets of gold, big old mansion, zero persecution. And we get excited about all of that. It's all the things we don't have here on earth. But don't miss what John is pointing out. The treasure is not the material benefits. The treasure is God. We Us lowly, sinful humans do not deserve to be in God's presence. We deserve to be far from God. We deserve to be repelled from God because we suppress the truth of God. And instead of worshiping our creator who loves us, we choose to worship all the other idols that hurt us. And yet here at the end, we get to be in the presence of God, not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus, not because of Not because his presence, not, I'm sorry, not just his presence, but we are his people. He is our God. We are at the table. We are family. So now that we have established that the treasure is God, look at what happens when we are in the presence of God. Verse four. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the formal former things have passed away in God's presence. There is no sin and therefore there is no pain. All the pain and the suffering and the evil and the chaos of this world, all the former things have passed away. They are gone in God's in God's presence is nothing but forever unending joy. Our life as we know it now, is marked by growing pains, mistakes, disappointments, and it all ends in death. In the next life, there is no sin and there is no death. Our family and friends in this life, as much as we love them and they love us, all of our relationships are broken because of sin. And in the next life, we are now one family of God, free from sin able to care for one another perfectly and cherish one another and encourage one another perfectly. Our affections now are marred by sin and therefore they're aimed at all the things that hurt us. And here in the next heaven, our love will be perfected as we set our affections on God and he will never, ever hurt us. Now, Steve and I were talking about this, but it's just amazing how personal God is, right? Look at the language. If you cried this week, and I'm not asking for any hands, okay? If you cried this week, God wants to wipe away your tears. He doesn't ignore them. He does not turn a blind eye towards our tears. When the time is right, when all have been added to his kingdom, he will return on the clouds in power and he will wipe away all of our tears for those who are in Christ. It's in God's presence that there is no sin, and therefore there is no pain. It's God is our ultimate treasure, and in his presence there is only flourishing. Verse 5, the final promise God makes. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all Things new. And he said, Write this down, for those words are trustworthy and true. So, the final promise God makes, and we make a lot of, we make a big deal about promises from this stage, okay? So, the final promise God makes, and we can rest our head on in the best of times and the worst of times, is that He is making all things new. And he reminds John to write this promise down, okay? Do not forget it. God is faithful to fulfill all that he promises, and he is making all things new. It's important because it's easy to look at our world and our history and to see all that is broken. If we look around the world, if we watch the news, if we read anything, if we open our computers, all we see is evil and injustice, and it feels like there is no hope. It feels like there is no end to injustice. So if we read about the war in Ukraine, and the claims of war crimes being done, we we think, is there no justice? We can look at what's happening in Iran to protesters and think, well, there's definitely no freedom, right? We can look at tsunamis in the South Pacific, earthquakes, the recent floods in Pakistan, and think, Lord, is there no peace? We can look at hunger and poverty and starvation statistics. Like right now, every 10 minutes, a child dies in Yemen. Every 10 minutes. So since I've been talking, two children have died. Since we started our service, six children have died of starvation because of war. And for what? Lord, we pray that you would come down and end injustice. And we long for racial justice, right? And I mean that on a micro level, like in the U.S., between the black and white relations that are shown in excessive police brutality, but I also mean on a macro level. So for example, do you know that there are tens of active genocides happening in the world right now that we know about? So the Rohingya in Myanmar, the Hazaras are killed by the Taliban in Afghanistan, the Nur in other ethnic groups in South Sudan, the Yazidis in Iraq and Syria, In the Central African Republic, the Christians and the Muslims, the tensions have gotten so heightened that they're just killing each other. The Darfuris in Sudan and the Uyghurs in China, and I, you know, with children here, I would not say the things that I've read about there. We need desperately for God to make all things new. We cannot do it. We cannot build a city that is a utopia because we cannot build a city that is without sin. We cannot build a world with healthy race relations because we cannot build a world without sin. But in God's mercy, God is making all things new. In his sovereignty, God is making all things new. And in his wisdom, God is making all things new. So we do pray, Lord Jesus, come today. Our world is marked by sin and injustice, and we long for Jesus to come make things new today. So far, we've, only, we've had no role in all of this. All that is happening, God is doing. God made the new heavens, God made the new earth, God made the new Jerusalem, and God is making all things new. But now it turns to our response, our responsibility. And there's a key word here that we cannot miss, the key word thirsty. So Revelation 21, six through eight. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So verse 6 begins with this declaration from God. "I, It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So I want us to come back to this phrase at the end and why it's important. But first, let's kind of look at these two groups. There's two groups that are here. Okay, so group number one, those who thirst for Jesus. Group number one, those who thirst for Jesus. We see this in verses six and seven. So those who thirst for Jesus are the church, the family of God. This family that's about to enter into the new heavens and the new earth and the new city that God has prepared for us in his presence forever. So to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter or son as an in inheritance. So we have to start, right? We are all thirsty, all of us. Every person who has ever lived, starting with Adam and Eve, has a thirst in their soul. God created us to be with him. We were created to be with God. He created in us a thirst in our soul that only he can satisfy. Only he can give us a drink from the spring of the water of life. That's why Jesus stood up at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7:37 and he declared, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Or Jesus answering the woman at the well said, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who you were asking for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water, water that will make you thirst no more, water that will lead to eternal life. What's even more incredible, again, what the angels you know, look upon is that this water is without payment. Without payment. And again, it's important to be very clear here, right? That it is without payment for you, and it is without payment for me. We do not need to pay for this living water. But that is not to say this living water did not come with a cost. It came with a great cost. The reason this living water, which leads to eternal life, is without payment is because Jesus paid the price that we could never afford. Jesus Christ, who was in the beginning with God, and he was God. Jesus, who the whole first creation and now the second creation is made through. Jesus Christ left heaven, born a baby, grew up a young plant, a young man, a root out of dry ground, as we read earlier. With all the growing pains we experience, fully God, fully man, a sinless, spotless person, Yet he was born with no beauty, a man of sorrows, a son of man who ministered to thousands. He healed them, he fed them, he clothed them, he loved them, and yet they despised him. They rejected him. It was Jesus who was pierced for our trans- transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was upon Jesus that the chastisement brought us all peace. And it is by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus died on the cross in our place. He paid the price for our sins. And now he speaks to you from his word no differently than when he stood up there in the crowd and he said from at the feast of the tabernacle, if anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. You do not have to wait until heaven to be in God's presence. You can be with Jesus now. You can come to him and you can drink from the well of Christ, which you need no payment because he paid it for you. He is our treasure. He is our good portion. He is the well of living water and he is trustworthy. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life. And all the rest of the verses, they hinge on this truth. So if you're thirsty for Jesus, He will give you a drink with no payment needed. And if you're thirsty for Jesus, you will conquer because you do not see anything else in this world that is able to fulfill the thirst in your soul but Jesus. You will conquer in this life, despite the sin of our own lives, despite the terribleness of the world around us, because once you have drank from the well of living water, no other well will taste as sweet. If you conquer, you will receive this heritage, this inheritance we have been talking about. The new heavens, the new earth, the new city that God bought by the blood of Jesus for the church. No tears, no pain, no sin, just God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit in unity with the church forever and ever and ever and ever. But there is a second group, verse eight, group two. Those who thirst for everything else but Jesus. Those who thirst for everything else but Jesus. Again, we all thirst for something. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So again, all of us have a thirst in our soul that only living water can satisfy all of us The tragedy of humankind is that we want to drink from every well that isn't Jesus. You see, Romans 1:18, it tells us this: that we know the truth, we know it in our conscience, we see it in creation, we know the truth, we know where to find living water, but because of our sin, we suppress the truth. We shove it down. We don't want God, we want our sin. We do not desire God, we desire our sin. We are dead in our trespasses. We are blinded by our sin. Our sin tells us to love everything else that will hurt us. Everything not Jesus is like drinking salt water. Looks like water, but it kills us slowly. And what's even more tragic, what is even the the most tragic, is that Jesus' living water comes at no cost. But drinking from all the other wells comes with a great cost. It comes with a terrible, terrible cost. The cost is the second death. We're all going to die in this world. But in the next life, we are either brought into God's presence forever and ever or we are expelled from God's presence forever and ever. So let's look back at verse 6. Why it's so important to look at Jesus' final declaration. Verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha Alpha in the omega, the beginning and the end. So as we've been studying this, this declaration is an incredible news for the church. All the sin, all the injustice, gone, passed away. And now God will dwell with man forever. It is done. And as good of a news as it is for the church, it is terrible news for everyone else the road is narrow to God, but to to the way of destruction is wide. There is coming a day when when there is no longer an opportunity to come to Jesus and drink. Right now, Jesus hasn't come back. And anyone who hears about Jesus and is called by Jesus can come to him and can drink without payment. And this is why God is allowing the injustice we see today, it's why he hasn't returned like five minutes after he, you know, ascended and came right back down. Second Peter 3 is really, really important to this. And it gives us insight into this question about why God waits, right? Why he sees all this injustice and waits. So 2 Peter 3, verse 4 says, scoffers will come saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction for the ungodly. Verse eight, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Verse nine, so important. The Lord does, is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and he waits. His anger burns against injustice. It is stored up in heaven with fire and it will come down on injustice. But he loves people. He loves people people more than anything else Jesus is slow to return not as some would count slowness but because there are more and more people there are more and more nations that he is waiting to come to him and drink before he closes the door right now the gates of heaven are wide open to anyone who he calls to come and drink That's why we're commissioned. That's we prioritize taking the gospels to the ends of the earth, to every nation, to every tongue, to every tribe, because we know there is a day coming when those gates are no longer open. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. All of creation started with him and it will finish with him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, and in some ways, they, in some of us, they will receive an inheritance of his presence, and others, they will receive an inheritance of his absence forever. That is why we believe. If they haven't heard, right? How will they hear if someone doesn't preach? How will they preach if someone isn't sent? So let me finish with three implications. There are so many, but let me finish with three implications. Number one, God is making and will make all things new. God is making and will make all things new. This world we live in is broken by sin. God's plan is not just to mend it or to reform it. He will burn it up. And from the ashes, he will build something that is beyond all of our earthly comprehension. Something so beautiful, so good, so righteous, Our fallen minds are incapable of imagining it. And this should give us great hope as we wrestle with the difficulties of today. So for those of us who are living in persecution because of your faith in Jesus, either from a government or from your workplace or from the sin of others or from your family members, God is making all things new. There will come a day when the righteous will be in the gates of the city of God. For those of you who are living with pain in your broken bodies, whether it's from cancer, diabetes, maybe your body is so worn down because you've worked 40 years of hard labor, or whether you long for children and you can't have them, God is making all things new. He has a new glorified body that is healed. It is free of sickness and in pain, and it is waiting for you on the other side of glory. For those of you who are living in broken relationships, either from an abusive parent or an abusive partner, a self-absorbed parent or a self-absorbed partner, if you have been abandoned by your friends, if you've been cheated on, if you just feel alone, God, is making all things new. He is freeing us from sin and therefore we can live in peace with one another, in unity and in love. Our sin is why we have broken relationships now. And God is one day going to free us of that sin. For those of you who have lost someone who have died recently, or maybe you've had a miscarriage, or maybe you just have a deep absence because of death, God is making all things new. He will make a new heaven and a new earth that has no death or mourning. This pain that you are feeling is not forever. And for those of you who are tore up by your sin, for us that are experiencing a civil war inside of ourselves, we hate the sin that's inside of us and we just can't seem to win sometimes. We fight and we fight. And again, it's good that you're fighting. That's that's an evidence of grace. But we fight and we fight and we fight. God is making all things new. He will make us sinless one day with him in glory. God is making all things new. Number two, our imperfect churches now point to a perfected church. Our imperfect churches now point to a perfected church. So Revelation starts with seven imperfect churches reflecting their love for Jesus. And I, I just, I don't want... You know, people to be bothered by the word imperfect, as you put it with church. But what I mean by that is, you know, the churches, they love Christ. They're bought by the blood of Christ. They're in some ways freed from sin, but at the same time, they struggle with sin. They fight for sin. They win some battles. Some churches are good at some things and bad at other things. Some churches are good at some things and bad at other things. We are imperfect churches. The church is still the bride of Christ. Jesus is with us and in us because of the Holy Spirit. But we have not received our final inheritance. We're getting installments. We're seeing the first fruits of it. We're getting to experience some of it, but we wait for Jesus to return to receive the full payment of it. And I'm going to say something bold, but, you know, I'm going to say something bold. All human flourishing should flow through the church. All human flourishing should flow through the church. What do I mean by that? Another way to say that is the church is where the people of God are transformed by the love of God so that they can rightly love their neighbor. Jesus did not die for a government. He did not die for a nonprofit. He did not die for some kind of economic system. He did not die for individual family bloodlines. Jesus died for the church. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom not of this world, but a kingdom of priests bought by his blood, living together as a new family, not by our ancestry, not by our ethnicity, not by whether we're rich or whether we're poor, not by whether we're wise or unwise, not by whether we're free or slave. The whole Bible ends and consummates with God and the church dwelling together together Forever in perfect flourishing. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, God with his bride. The church with God is where it all ends. So, why do we not treat the church like it is the most important thing on earth today? The church is where it all ends. So, why do we not treat it like it is the most important thing on earth today? The church is the center of all human flourishing, the true love of God. And the true love of neighbor is radical to this world and it should spring like living water from the church. The church is the hands and the feet of Christ to this world. The church is Jesus' bride. He has gone to heaven to prepare a place for us in his father's house. The church is the most important thing you can give your life to. And I'm not ashamed of saying this because if you're on the outside and you're looking in, You are not experiencing all that you can experience in Christ. And even more, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place to be tempted by sin. Look at the book of Revelation. Yes, we are all going to be one church one day. But today, we're made up of individual churches in individual locations, and we are imperfect. We are imperfect, but we are God's bride until his coming. So join with us. Or join with another church in Abu Dhabi. Give your life away to others, but do not neglect the most important family God has given us on this side of heaven. And last, last thing, and I'll be done. We all thirst for living water. We all thirst for living water. We have a thirst in our soul. Jesus is the only well that does not run dry. So if you are in Christ today, Praise the Lord that he opened your eyes to see him as good and right and beautiful. We didn't do that. We were dead in our trespasses. He woke you up. So now today that you are alive, worship him. Drink more and more from his well. Drink from his word, drink from prayer, drink from Christian community, drink from worship music, drink from serving one another, drink from loving your neighbor, drink by sharing the gospel with your friends, drink by sacrificially giving. Jesus is the only well that will satisfy the thirst in your soul and it is without cost to you. If you're in Christ, do not be deceived by the sin in your heart or the wisdom of the world, nothing you see outside of Jesus will give you joy, hope, love, or peace that is only found in Jesus. And I don't mean your sin won't give you momentary joy or momentary peace or momentary love, but it will not fulfill the deepest part of your soul. There are many wells There are many wells that look good to drink from. We all have a well that we are tempted from. There are many wells that look good to drink from. But I promise you, it is like salt water. It is poison. It may kill you fast. It may kill you slow, but it will not give you life. To some of you here who are undecided, maybe you're on the fence about Jesus. Maybe you have pretended your whole life to know him, called yourself a Christian or maybe you're here from a different faith background. I don't know in your heart, uh, only God does. But if you are undecided about Jesus, I implore you to come to him. Come to him because he is, it is only him that you can receive love and joy and hope and goodness in this life. And it is only in his presence that we will receive the fullness of joy waiting for us on the other side. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. There are many other wells. And honestly, like, I think, too, we can even feel, there are, some of us can feel like, well, maybe I could buy it, right? Like, maybe I don't want Jesus to buy it. I, I could buy it with my good works. I could, you know, do enough good works. And, you know, in many ways, A lot of other religions teach that, right? And if we do enough good works, we can earn our salvation. But the truth is we can't. It's not about our good works adding up on some scale. Our heart's posture is towards all the other things. Our heart, it's not just that we make mistakes. Our heart's posture is towards the other things of this world. But Jesus, when he opens our eyes, when the scales fall from our eyes, he calls us to see him and to put aside all those other things. He makes the blind see. Only Jesus paid the acceptable sacrifice. Jesus was sinless, and yet it was his body that was the lamb upon the altar. Look at his hands, look at his feet, look at his side. You can be right with God in this life and in the next life because Jesus bore our sins upon the cross. And for those of you who are here who have closed your heart to Jesus, You're here for some reason or another, but your heart, in your heart, you think this is just a waste of time. You don't believe this. Hear this, Jesus is patient. He's so patient. He waits so that more and more people who he predestined and who he called from the beginning of time will have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to respond. But there is coming a day when the Alpha and the Omega decides to shut that door. As long as it is still called today, do not harden your heart. Ask the Lord to soften your heart. Jesus is the only source of love, joy, and hope in this life and in the next. In church, he is making all things new. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are just so grateful for Jesus and what he did for us upon the cross. And he paid what we could not pay. We pray today that we would see Jesus more clearly. And in Jesus' name, amen.